satisfied with their income this too is meaningless as goods increase so do those who consume them and what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them the sleep of a laborer is sweet whether they eat little or much but as for the rich their abundance permits them no sleep i have seen a grievous evil under the sun wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners or wealth lost through some misfortune so that when they have children there is nothing left for them to inherit everyone comes naked from their mother's womb and as everyone comes so they depart they take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands this too is a grievous evil as everyone comes so they depart and what do they gain since they toil for the wind all their days they eat in darkness with great frustration affliction and anger this is what i have observed to be good that it is appropriate for a man to eat to drink and to find satisfaction in their toil some labor under the sun during the few days of life god has given them for this is their lot moreover when god gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them to accept their lot and to be happy in their toil this is a gift of god they seldom reflect on the days of their life because god keeps them occupied with gladness of heart shall we pray lord our gracious father we thank you for this wonderful morning you've given us to come together as a family and praise and worship you we thank you for this uh, word that you've given us today lord even as brother raven speaks to us today lord i pray that you will strengthen him and that all that he speaks today will be inspired from you lord lord even as we sit and hear today lord i pray that we will focus on what you have to teach us today and that we won't be distracted by anything i pray lord that we will keep our hearts open so that we will learn whatever lessons you have to teach us today and that we will apply them over the coming weeks all this i pray in the Je- in the name of our lord and savior jesus christ amen Good morning. It's good to be back here after two Sundays. Um, this is not the segue I was looking for, but uh, since John is seated right here in front of me, I'll, I think I'll go ahead with that. I don't like it, but I'll go ahead with that. Uh, John has a very good habit. John Vergis, okay, not John Paul. Out of the many good habits that he has, uh, he sends me jokes on WhatsApp with with a ps saying please use this joke for your sermon <laughs> i've never used any of them because <laughs> i've never liked any of them <laughs> and they are irrelevant to my messages <laughs> but yesterday he sent me one he sent me one and he said uh, well i got that same gro- uh, joke from 10 other groups but uh, he said please give me credit although it's irrelevant to my message i'll still go ahead <laughs> <laughs> for the sake of easter <laughs> and uh, jobin was talking about uh, joseph of arimathea having a brand new tomb right 
So uh, the Bible says nobody had been lain in that. It's a brand new tomb. He gave it to Jesus. And so somebody came and asked uh, Joseph of Arimathea the question, it's a brand new tomb. Why did you give it to him? So Joseph said, well, he just borrowed for the weekend. <laughs> That's the joke that John sent. <laughs> All right. So we will, we will continue our study in the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, as is clear from the reading, today's passage is taken from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 8 through 20. Ecclesiastes 5, verses 8 through 20. Now the legendary singer and performer Michael Jackson has been said to have battled many anxieties and fears in his life. He had a fortune of about $600 million dollars a fortune of about $600 million. And even then, the amount of money that he had amassed, $600 million, and all the fame and adulation that he had could not come to his help to bail him out of all the fears and anxieties that he had. Before Jackson's death in 2009, he supposedly had financial difficulties And he was also in clash with the promoters of a series of the concerts that he was going to perform at. And the interesting thing is, right after he died, two of his close bodyguards wrote a book about him. And in that book, they described Michael Jackson as a man who was lonely, who was sad, and who wanted just a normal life. Who wanted just a normal life. Let me turn to another celebrity, Andre Agassi. Andre Agassi in the early 1990s and the early 2000s as well, he was, nobody could beat him in court. In fact, we used to look forward to Wimbledon finals between Andre Agassi and Pete Sampras. And this man was very successful and he earned ton, tons of money. In fact, I think his net, work today, uh, net worth today would be about $175 million. But in his 2009 book, Andre Agassi revealed that his life as a tennis superstar with all of the money that he earned and all of the fame and adulation that he had garnered, those years were the ones that he hated the most. His life as a successful tennis star were the years that he hated the most. He says, despite his wealth and success, playing the game interfered with my personal life and he felt discontented with his life. Playing the game interfered with his personal relationships and he was discontented with his life. Now, these are some of the people that uh, we admired growing up. And even though we thought that if we had that kind of money, and if we had lived the same kind of lives, that would give us some kind of a satisfaction in life. Because that's what the world believes about this kind of people. The world thinks that the more the money, the more the satisfaction in life, or the greater the happiness that you have. But the fact of the matter is, these people, when you look at these lives, they feel discontented with a lot of money that they have as well. So when we look at it, when we look at their lives, when we look at all that is happening, we think it's nice to have enough money to cover everyday expenses and a lot of other cash as well for us to live a luxurious life, thinking that money will bail us out of our problems. If that is the case then the rich would have all these things. The rich would have more genuine friendships. The rich would have a lower divorce rate. 
The rich would have more genuine smiles and laughter than the poor. The rich would have more leisure time to enjoy. And the rich would have more purpose and direction in life. But the fact of the matter is, they don't. And this ought to raise some important questions for us this morning. Is there a connection between money and happiness? Is there a connection between money and happiness? Or what is the secret to happiness in life? What is the secret to happiness in life? Now Solomon was the wealthiest man of his day. He knew all about money. He had all the riches that he could have. And if there was anybody who was qualified to write about the connection between riches and happiness in life, it was Solomon. And when he looked at all of these things, wealth and happiness, and he had uh, pondered about the connection between the two, these are the conclusions that he came to in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 8 through 20. So today's passage will reveal to us three things that you and I need to understand to find happiness in life. Three things that you and I need to understand to find happiness in life. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 8 through 20. Ecclesiastes 5, verses 8 through 20. So in verses 8 and 9, you will see that the pursuit of money by corrupt officials should not shock us. The pursuit of money by corrupt officials should not shock us. Our experience in this fallen world leads us to the expectation that there is corruption in every level of government. And it's a reality. There is corruption at every level of government. And Solomon deals with it by explaining two things in this passage. Firstly, he says, the officials have an intricate network of extortion. Look at verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there, there are yet higher officials over them. Now, this verse begins with the theme of pursuing wealth, which often is the cause of oppression. And if you remember in chapter 4, verses 1, 2, and 3, when we studied that chapter, Solomon already examined the theme of oppression. And in that chapter, when he talked about the theme of oppression, the preacher observed with astonishment that there's rampant oppression and injustice in the world. But here he goes one step further, and he's saying, yes, there is oppression in the world. Yes, there is so much of injustice in the world, but you ought not to be shocked by it. You and I ought not to be surprised by it. The problem here is not just there's one particular scoundrel or rascal who by accident commits evil, but the fact of the matter is there is one evil person above that person who is forcing him to commit that as well. And there is another higher official above him who has the authority to extract money out of the lower official as well. And so the higher you go in this hierarchy, the more corrupt the official is, is what Solomon is saying. In light of what Solomon is saying, how naive of us to think that if we go to the bigger courts of the land, the higher courts of the land, we'll be handed down a better justice. I was reading an article uh, entitled, Corruption Among Public Servants in India. Corruption Among Public Servants in India. Now, I'm not trying to cast any aspersions on uh, any particular profession or any particular department, but this is a reality that all of us can relate to. And in one of the paragraphs, the author says this, Corruption is noticeable not only at the top, it percolates all the way down in India. For example, he says, 
in the engineering department, a junior engineer asks for 5% of the total amount of transaction, an assistant engineer for 3%, while an executive engineer will have to be content with a paltry 2%. In the income tax department, the rate varies from Rs. 10,000 for the inspector to Rs. 5 lakhs or more for the commissioner, depending on the amount of tax that is paid. In the police department, the rate varies, varies from a constable from Rs. 100 to Rs. 2,000, for a sub-inspector and inspector from Rs. 2,000 to Rs. 10,000, and for a deputy superintendent and superintendent from Rs. 10,000 to 20,000. A clerk in the secretariat accepts Rs. 100 to 2,000 for issuing the papers that are required for us. In government offices, even the permission that has been granted for something, the concerned clerk will refuse to type the sanction letter or post it unless he's paid a bribe amounting to 1% to 2% of the transactions. And he says, uh, the author says this, corruption is so pervasive in government departments that even a former prime minister had to state at a public meeting that out of every 100 rupees sanctioned by the government for any public program, the people actually get the benefit of worth only rupees 20. This is a paragraph that the author was talking about in the article. Solomon is saying not to be surprised at the oppression and injustice. This does not excuse any kind of an unrighteousness, but Solomon is simply being realistic about living in a fallen world. As long as we live in this world, we will see people buying their uh, way to power, using public position for personal gain, and manipulating the system for their own advantage. So Solomon begins by saying the officials have an intricate network of corruption. I think I went ahead of myself. The second one is the corrupt power relations and injustice have spread even to the top. Look at verse 9. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. This is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Now, this is a very, very tough verse to interpret. But this, I think, is the best, inter- uh, best interpretation for this verse. In the Old Testament law, it was important for kin groups and family members to hold on to the land that they were given for the rest of their lives. They had to inalienably hold on to the land that they were given for the rest of their lives. In fact, in Leviticus 25, it clearly mentions that the land belonged to the Lord. And it is the Lord who, out of his grace, gave them an inheritance in the land of Israel to them, a portion in the land of Israel. That was their inheritance. And it's not just that it was their inheritance, but it was a means of their economic survival as well. Every family had to cultivate their own land. And the kind of oppression that he is talking about is stealing of the land, is robbery of the land from somebody else in Israel. In Proverbs 23, verses 10 and 11, we see this. Do not move an ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless, for the Redeemer is strong. He will plead their cause against you. Now, what is this proverb saying? This proverb is saying that the king here was appointed to make sure that there was justice in the land of Israel, that nobody's land was robbed so that everybody could cultivate their own fields. Everybody could enjoy the produce of the earth that they had produced. And the task of the king was to make sure that everybody held their own land and nobody would rob anybody's land. But the fact of the matter is Solomon here is using irony. He's saying that injustice and oppression had gone even to the top. And if the king himself is unjust, if the king himself is corrupt, 
then you will not find any cultivated lands in Israel because lands have been robbed. Remember in First Kings 21, you have the story of Neboth who, who owned a vineyard. And here is uh, King Ahab. He looks out his window and he sees this beautiful vineyard. He wants it for himself. It's a small land, but he still wants it for himself. But Naboth is unwilling to sell it. And here is his wife, the wicked queen. She comes and says, what do you mean? Aren't you the king? Aren't you supposed to take it yourself? You go to bed. I'll get the thing for you. By evening, she has Naboth killed. And she comes and says, you have the vineyard to yourself. So Solomon is saying here that the corrupt power relations and injustice have spread even to the top. Why does Solomon begin with this? We don't have that here. Why does, why does Solomon begin with this? In verses 8 and 9, we just saw that the pursuit of money by corrupt officials should not shock us. Why does Solomon begin with this? The reason is, seeing the injustice and how the wealthy benefit from it, you and I may be tempted to think, if only we had such a lifestyle, if only we had that kind of a money, we could benefit from that money as well. Probably in a moment of weakness, we would even go on to think and try to espouse, espouse the kind of lifestyles that these oppressors could espouse. But very quickly, the uh, preacher turns around and comes and warns about the vanity of prosperity for us. So we understand that prosperity is vanity. It is meaningless to pursue money like that. So which is our second point, and that is in verses 10 through 17. They say that the pursuit of money always leaves us spiritually bankrupt. The pursuit of money always leaves us spiritually bankrupt. When people make wealth the single pursuit of their lives, they are in danger of destroying their character. Now hear me please. When people make uh, money the single pursuit of their lives, they are in danger of destroying their character. And even if they achieve the goal, they may find themselves enslaved by a way of life that does not satisfy them at all. In saying that, Solomon gives us four points about the danger of pursuing wealth alone. And let's go one by one. Firstly, Solomon says the love of money does not bring fulfillment. The love of money does not bring fulfillment. Look at verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. Here is a well-known truth about money. No matter how much money you have, people who live for money will never be satisfied. People who live for money will never find happiness because they want more and more of it. John D. Rockefeller, uh, who was once upon a time the richest man in the world, was once asked this question by somebody. How much money is enough? And he said, a little bit more. A little bit more. And he was the wealthiest man in the world. I think of Lee Iokoka, who was, I think, once upon a time, uh, the, the chairman of Ford Motors. In fact, he was instrumental in creating the model uh, Pinto and, uh, and Ford Mustang as well. So while at the Ford company, he was, he was fired once, and he was tenaciously holding on to the job. He was fired by the company, and uh, he went on to... Uh, be very, very honest in a moment of his vulnerability, and he went on to admit that greed was the worst sin ever possible in this world. And then he quoted his father, and he said this, My father always said, be careful about money. When you have 5,000, you'll want 10. When you have 10, you'll want 20. He says he was right. No matter how much you have, it's never enough. No matter how much you have, it's never enough. 
The contemporary author, Jessie O'Neill, has diagnosed a spiritual problem, and she calls the spiritual problem affluenza. Affluenza. And she says this, it is an unhealthy relationship with money, or it is the pursuit of wealth. Most people, especially those people who live in the city, at least have a mild case of this deadly disease, is what she says. And even if we are thankful for what we have and what the Lord has given We often think about the things that we don't have. And we often think about things that we don't have and how to get them as well. And when we know that we don't have the money to purchase them, we become disillusioned. And so, love of money does not bring fulfillment, is what Solomon says. Secondly, money can be taken by others for their use. Money can be taken by others for their use. Look at verse 11. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Now, this in some way talks about people who consume our wealth, who try to consume our money. It could be the oppressive government with their heavy taxes that they're levying upon us that uh, Solomon described in verses 8 and 9. Or it could be our own children around our uh, dinner table whose mouths we have to feed. Or it might be freeloaders who come to us wanting money and asking for money with nothing to give to us in return. But no matter who these people are, Solomon is saying the more we have, the more they try to get it from us. The more we have, the more they try to get it from us. And no one knew this better than King Solomon because Solomon had to feed in his own palace thousands and thousands of people every single day. And Solomon was saying that if they get it from us, if they consume our wealth, then we will not have anything to enjoy. Then Solomon That's why Solomon says here, money can be taken by others for their use. So two things we saw so far about money. Money, uh, the love of money does not bring fulfillment. And secondly, money can be taken by others for their use. Thirdly, Solomon says, money keeps us awake at night. Look at verse 12. Money keeps us awake at night. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. The preacher king makes this point by drawing a contrast here. He is saying as a general rule that people who have manual labor, people who work hard all day, will go back to bed and they sleep very well in the night. They are ready for a good night's rest. But the idle rich, they will not get a good night's rest. In this case, their their insomnia is caused by indigestion. And their gluttonous diet of fatty foods gives them a tummy ache and so they won't be able to sleep well, is what Solomon is saying. Dr. Carl Menninger once asked uh, his patient, who was a very, very wealthy patient, he says, he asked him, what on earth are you going to do with all of that money? And the patient looked at him and said, worry about it, I suppose. And then Dr. Manager went on to ask him, do you get that much pleasure out of worrying about it? The patient said, no, but I get such terror when I think of giving it to somebody else. I get such terror when I think of giving it to somebody else. So having a lot of money is very, very unhealthy, not just spiritually, but physically as well. And those of us who work for money, who just have enough money, should count our blessings, although we don't have big 
paychecks because refreshing sleep is a blessing of manual labor and those who have a lot of wealth will not have good sleep at night is what Solomon is saying. So money keeps us awake at night. Fourthly, Solomon says that money is transient. It is temporary. Look at verses 13 through 17. There is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches are kept by their owner to his hurt and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. And as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, and sickness and anger. Now Solomon is giving the final reason why living for money is meaningless. And the reason is money is here today and it's gone tomorrow. It's here today and gone tomorrow. And to make this point, the preacher is making a case study here. He is saying there was a certain man who tried to hold his wealth, but he lost all of his wealth in some kind of a risky investment. Now, today people lose money in um, stock markets and that kind of investments. But in those days, uh, when somebody invested money, they lost money when the ships floundered at sea or the train of camels were attacked in the wilderness. Whatever the reason for losing money, this man took a gamble and he suffered a reversal of fortunes and he ended up destitute. Even worse, Solomon is saying this man was a father and he had nothing to give to his son. Now, the story assumes that the Bible does give a command to parents to save some money and to pass it on to the next generation, leave a legacy for their sons and daughters. So not only did this man in the story fail to fulfill his father's uh, fatherly duty, but in the end, he lost everything that he had as well. But look at verses 15 and 16. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing from his toil uh, that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go, and what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? The Apostle Paul applied the same truth as well in the New Testament. He said, we brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of it as well. One day, all of our labors will be lost. And this is the tragic reality for every one of us that we must all face. This is the tragic reality for every one of us that we must all face. After a very successful European tour, uh, the golf champion Simon Dyson was asked if there was anything that he was afraid of. He said, I'm afraid of death because I've made so much money and I'm planning to enjoy with that money that death at this moment would not be a good thing. Death at this moment would not be a good thing. Now, you and I may not have as much money as a professional golfer, but the day will come when you and I have to leave everything behind, and you and I cannot take anything with us at all. And since we are made for eternity, and we'll have to travel for eternity, you and I better travel light. You and I better travel light. So what should we say about the things that we own today? First of all, we ought to thank God for the things that we own, and we ought to thank God for giving us a time to enjoy the things that we have. Or maybe we can pray about giving that away for the work of the kingdom. But always remembering this particular fact that you and I will never take it after our death. 
you, will, you and I will never take it into the afterlife, what we have. Finally, in verse 17, Solomon says, Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. So this is where greed, greed will lead to. The ungodly pursuit of wealth will take physical toil, leaving the person in poor health. He will also be hungry and a bitter old man as well. So that's where everything leads to the love of money. And Solomon gave four reasons why we should not pursue money. And the uh, pursuit of money will always be a vanity. So two things we've learned so far about the secret of happiness. Firstly, the pursuit of money by corrupt officials should not shock us. Secondly, Solomon said that the pursuit of money always leaves us spiritually bankrupt. So in light of these many disappointments in pursuing money, should we live as hermits? Should we go away into a forest and just live as hermits? No, Solomon is saying that God wants people to enjoy wealth, which is Solomon's remedy to the problem that he raised. And verses 18 through 20 give us a third point that he's giving, that the pursuit of God enables us to enjoy life and its gifts. The pursuit of God enables us to enjoy life and its gifts. Depend on God for our enjoyment rather than depending on one of his many gifts. Depend on God for our enjoyment rather than depending on uh, one of his many gifts that he has given us to give us joy. And in making his case, Solomon has two things to say. Let's go one by one very quickly. Firstly, Solomon said, enjoy your work and its fruits as gifts from God. Look at verse 18. Behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Thank God there's a better way to live is what Solomon is saying. And Solomon is giving us a balanced, God-centered view of life. Just as he'd been, uh, he'd been very honest about the vanity of pursuing money, he also wants to tell us the truth about finding joy in the everyday things of life, such as working and eating and drinking. And the preacher knows that joy is real because he has experienced it in his own life. And he's saying, yes, our time on earth is short, but whatever time we have left is a sacred gift that God himself has given us. Now, Solomon could say this because he believed in the God of joy. Earlier, he was talking about the vanity of money, and he never brought God into that picture when he was talking about the vanity of money. But in the last three verses of this passage, he mentions God repeatedly. The point is, whenever you find enjoyment, you must find it in God alone. You must find it in God alone. Without God, life is meaningless, especially if we live for money. But we know the God of joy, when we know the God of joy, work, eating, and drinking will all take upon meaning, and we will find satisfaction in life through that. Lastly, Solomon said, when God is with us, even money can prove to be a blessing. When God is with us, even money can prove to be a blessing. Look at verses 19 and 20. Everyone also to, him, to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy in his heart. Now notice the phrasing of verse 19 here. Earlier, Solomon listed four reasons uh, why money is vanity. And yet he tells us explicitly here that if you're wealthy, if you've got money, you should enjoy it. 
This almost sounds like a contradiction here, but notice where the power of enjoyment comes from. He says in these verses, the power of enjoyment comes from God himself. The power of enjoyment comes from God himself. So both having things and enjoying things are from God. When the God of joy is with us, even money can prove to be a blessing. On the other hand, if God is absent, then nothing can satisfy us, least of all money. Christian Wyman once said this, If God has no relationship to your experience, if God is not in your experience, then experience itself then experience is always an end in itself, a dead end. Then experience always is an end in itself, a dead end is what he says. So this profound insight helps us to take a balanced view of our earthly possessions. The world that God has created has many good gifts to give us. Uh, money, our work, eating and drinking, all these things. But the problem is we often try to worship the gifts and forget the giver. And Solomon here is saying that the ability to enjoy wealth and food and friendships and all these good things don't come from any gifts that he has given us, but they come from the giver himself. That's a lot of wisdom that Solomon has given us in the entire passage. Let me sum up the entire message in one sentence. To put the entire passage in one sentence, Solomon is saying this. If you have a close personal relationship with God, you will find the greatest enjoyment in life. If you have a close personal relationship with God, then you will find the greatest enjoyment in life. So you and I must depend on God for our joy rather than depending on any one of his gifts to give us that kind of a joy. Let me end with this illustration. Uh, talking about Phil Jackson. Phil Jackson was the coach of Chicago Bulls, a basketball team that we all know. Uh, and he was the coach in the days of Michael Jordan. And before, his, before he turned into coaching, uh, in the 1970s, he played for a team called New York Knicks. And that team, that year, won the championship. And he was very happy about it. He wanted to celebrate after years and think about this uh, particular event that happened, which was a massive thing in his life. And later on, he went to New York to celebrate with his family and his friends as well. And some of the stars of his team were seated in the restaurant, and, and some big shots were seated in the restaurant as well. But he writes that as he went and met his friends there in that restaurant, he could not find any connect with them. And he found disillusioned. And he, there was no joy is what he says. And he says this, I kept saying to myself, is this what was supposed to bring me happiness? Clearly, the answer lay somewhere else. And he writes, what I was missing was spiritual direction. What I was missing was spiritual direction. Can we all close our eyes for a moment, please? Especially in light of what Solomon has been speaking to us from his word. With all of the distractions that we have, I'm not saying that you would have heard the entire message, but is it possible that the Lord has spoken to you through one particular illustration or a sentence or a particular verse in this particular passage? So let me ask you this question, as I ask myself, have you turned away from the weariness of wealth and every other good thing to find your joy in God alone? If you don't have joy and satisfaction in life, then you must be looking for it in the wrong place. And the only way to find satisfaction 
is to repent of our sin and, to pr- and, and pray to God right now, Lord, you know how empty I am this morning. And I'm trying to fill that emptiness with a lot of gifts that the world could give me. Help me to fill that emptiness with your grace. And if there is anybody seated here who hasn't filled his emptiness or her emptiness with the grace that comes from God alone, may I request you this morning to reach out to the cross where Jesus gave his life for all of our greedy sins. And if you hold on to the Savior, you will find full satisfaction in him. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for this morning. We want to thank you for these profound words from Solomon. Although written centuries ago, Lord, they really apply to us and are relevant to us this morning. Because of our jobs, because of the world we live in, we are often tempted to pursue money, pursue wealth, and find our satisfaction in the gifts that you give us. But we realize this morning from your word that it's not in the gifts per se that we have satisfaction. It is in pursuing you that we enjoy those gifts. We want to thank you for speaking to us about it. And we pray, O Lord, that if there is anybody seated here who doesn't know you personally, to find that satisfaction in life that you alone can give, help us to reach out to you. Help us to find salvation to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray for the rest of the time of fellowship and everything, O Lord. We pray that you would bless it to us and give us. And all the conversations we're going to have would be to the glory and the honor of your name. In Jesus' name.